If you pro- prohibit, then you don't have the ability to implement a full range of harm reduction strategies. And you know, by harm reduction, we mean an acknowledgement, not necessarily an approval, but acknowledgement that a certain segment of the population is going to use drugs yeah. and then implement policies that minimize the harm from that use to the greatest extent possible. to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Uh, This week, uh, we're talking to a good friend of the NSRLP, one of our board members, in fact, Bill Bogart. Yes, Professor Bill Bogart, distinguished professor. (laughs) And Bill has been my friend and colleague for many years now. And he's going to talk today about his new book, which is about the legalization of drugs. Just to give a little background to Bill, because he's a somewhat unusual academic. He began life as a pretty traditional academic. He was an administrative law specialist, which, you know, isn't the kind of thing that necessarily keeps me wide awake at night, (laughs) although I'm sure Bill thought it was really interesting. But what's happened in his work is that he's turned the issues that interested him, which are mostly about uh, government regulation of harmful activity, into a way of talking to a much larger public audience because, of course, there are many, many issues here that are important for people. How do we regulate risky behavior Mm -hmm. like eating food that's bad for us, consuming drugs and alcohol, gambling excessively? And, And Bill has written about all of these things, and he's a regular commentator on the media. He blogs for the Huffington Post, which makes him cool, I think, as well. And he has written a new book called Off the Street, uh, which set out his views on the legalization of drugs in Canada. And this seemed like an especially topical issue to cover in a podcast this season in light of the upcoming legalization of marijuana in Canada. I'm talking to Bill in this conversation about both that and also what the next steps towards legalization might look like. It's Julie. Hello, Julie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. Now, I know that I find you, as usual, at your desk, beavering away, but I'm going to take you away from what you're beavering on for 20 minutes and talk to you about your last book. It's a very important topic and one that you and I have had many conversations about, and I think that the people listening to the podcast are are going to be very interested in. So let me jump right in here. When I first started reading your book, Off the Street, which is your book about the legalization of drugs, the thing that I remember really sort of grabbed me in the first 10 pages or so, and it's a theme throughout the book, was how well you describe the failure of the war on drugs, and not just its failure in terms of the gang violence that's being created as different groups have tried to control the illicit trade and the law with law enforcement. You know, you do this incredible job of setting out this whole spectrum 
you and I both know that there are still people out there that still feel that that's what we should be doing. We just got to win the war instead of losing it. So what would you emphasize if you had somebody in front of you who was skeptical about whether, as you suggest, we should be abandoning a failed war on drugs? Well, I think I would say, Julie, that you know this war has been going on for something like four decades. It's not like, oh, we'll try it for a couple of years and then Bill, Bill Bogart, amongst many others, is saying, okay, well, let's just fold the tent. We, we've been at it for a very, very long time. And its central objective, which was to create a drug-free world, that is for the illegal drugs, yeah. tobacco and largely left tailed it in other ways. And, and we know that that central objective has not been achieved. And indeed, we have evidence that at least for some drugs, use has actually increased. But beyond the failure of the central objective, there are these very significant collateral costs, some of which you've alluded to. So we've been a springboard for this vast national and international illicit market that makes billions of dollars that make their way through all manner of violence that uh, doesn't care about quality assurance, so they distribute drugs that uh, can make people sick or Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. even kill them. And there's been terrible exploitation of individuals. Uh, Of course, the obvious ones that you've talked about, the criminalization for simple use, but also things like uh, the children. Children have been horribly exploited but I would say even in our own uh, country, you know, we, yes. we haven't had a sophisticated approach to persuading children that whatever is going on in their lives, drugs are not, uh, are not the answer, that there are all sorts of very deleterious consequences for a child using the, any kind of drug. And I think the last thing I think is, uh, you know, we don't, if you pro- prohibit, then you don't j- have the ability to implement a full range of harm reduction strategies. And, you know, by harm reduction, we mean an acknowledgement, not necessarily an approval, but acknowledgement that a certain segment of the population is going to use drugs. Yeah. And then implement policies that minimize the harm from that use to the greatest extent possible. Do you see a a relationship, Bill, between poverty and some of the ways in which the illicit drugs trade has taken control? Because I can certainly think of a couple of places that I've lived in during my adult life where it seemed that the drugs trade was the only thing that really existed as a means of economic maximization to people. And it just sucked in so many people as a result. Harmful drug use and indeed harmful use in terms of almost any form of consumption definitely has a link uh, to poverty. It doesn't mean that anybody of any uh, socioeconomic status can't uh, certainly use drugs. But, you know, you're you're right. I mean, economic opportunities in poverty-stricken areas uh, Mm. are scarce, and so the drug trade becomes such an opportunity. You know, one of the things that I also thought was so interested about, interesting about how you analyze this in Off the Street, Bill, was that you also acknowledge that attitudes, public attitudes, social attitudes have changed towards 
drug use. Now, in a way, what's happening as we're moving into a new era of legalization here in relation to marijuana in Canada is maybe not so much the result of the failure of the war on drugs and more about people's attitudes changing, or, or is it both? Well, I think they're interrelated, right? That a recognition that the case for the war on drugs is becoming weaker and weaker was a very important prelude yes. to legalization of cannabis. Then I think, you know, specific factors focused on cannabis paved the way for legalization. Uh, certainly changing attitudes towards cannabis use was important. And part of that change, I think, came from, well, a number of factors, but two important ones were the legalization of medical marijuana, which the Courts Act did in about 15 years ago. And it, suddenly people realized, oh, wait, this drug can have actually have a therapeutic purpose. Many of us know people, or we are people, who have used marijuana for pain control and other medical issues, and people are becoming more aware of that. I think that's what you're saying. And, and combined with, I think, you know, enough scientific evidence to suggest, look, whatever the consequence of use of cannabis, and, you know, you can get to a point where the use is harmful, uh, you know, this is not the stuff of reefer madness. Mm. And certainly compared to other drugs, including alcohol, you can make a case that in many ways cannabis is the least harmful of these drugs. Less so than alcohol and nicotine. Well, nicotine is right up there, right? Nicotine, yeah. you, you, the, the dependency rates for nicotine are something like 80%. There's a controversy about whether cannabis ever generates physical cravings, but setting aside that controversy, psychological dependence runs at about 14%. Uh, you know, nicotine has this high, high level of toxicity. Nicotine kills. Yeah. Um, no one has ever died from ingesting cannabis. I mean, it's, it's impossible to overdose in a fatal way from, from that drug. And, of course, cannabis makes you mellow. It does not make you aggressive in the way that mm -hmm. alcohol can make you. Now, I'm not, to be, I'm not to be understood as saying that cannabis is always harmless. It can be harmful. Right. We need, certainly need to persuade young people that they should not be using this drug with any kind of regularity. You know, kids experiment, Julie. What you need to talk to the kid is and say, look, kids are not adults in small bodies. You're developing physically and psychologically in ways that drugs can have a much stronger impact on you. So it's not a moral issue. We're not saying you're a bad person if you've used, smoked a couple of joints. But if you use this drug with any regularity, it can have very severe conflict, negative consequences. Yeah, and, and it has different impacts on, on different people, of course, you know, depending upon their own particular circumstances. But, you know, if we accept that we're moving into a whole new era here now in relation to marijuana, in relation to cannabis, partly, I'm sure you're right, Bill, because of the history of its use medically. But let's take this the next step, because when you argue in off the street for a new approach towards the legalization of drugs, you're not just talking about cannabis. And of course, you know, you have a history of writing about issues around the, you know, regulation by government of potentially harmful activities. 
And, you know, your, your byline here has often been that government should commit but discourage, which is sort of a little bit what you're saying about cannabis. But, but let's take this away from cannabis now and move us forward maybe five years towards a more permissive drugs regime, perhaps in relation to other drugs that are currently illegal. What would you say about that? I'd say permit but discourage. I want drugs legalized and regulated, Julie, not because I think they're harmless, mm. but because I'm, I believe I'm acutely aware of how harmful they can be. Mm. And that's the discourage part. But the permit part is about saying, look, whatever the harms and dangers of drugs are, and I fully am open to those kinds of conversations, Criminalizing people for use simply makes the situation worse. Our jails are full of drugs. Do you think that if you sentence somebody to jail for drug use, they're not yeah. going to be using drugs? Plus, you've ruined their, li their lives in terms of criminalizing them. You know, my whole push here is not about, oh, like, let's all start using drugs and creating a happier time. I mean, that's just foolishness. Anybody that depends on drugs to get them through this life is pretty well going to make their situation worse. But, you know, the answer to this is not in the criminal law. The answer to this is looking at drug consumption through the lens of public health. It should become a public health issue. And part of that will absolutely be discouraging harmful use. And remember, I always go back to harmful use, not use, harmful use. Mm -hmm. So, for example, tobacco, there is no safe limit right. in terms of using tobacco. All use is harmful use. People should simply not smoke. And that has been a public health success story through it a has, complex yes. array of, of regulation and a shift in public attitudes. So we're back to the importance of public attitudes. We have in 40 years reduced the rate of smoking among adults in Canada to something kissing 50% down to something around 17%. Yes. And the news is even better with kids. We've got it down to single digits. And we know that if, a, uh, if an individual does not smoke before the age of 20, they're very unlikely to become a lifelong smoker. So use and harmful use with alcohol and with cannabis, there can be moderate use that isn't harmful. And this is a very you know, persuasive argument about discouraging. But, but the one other piece that I wonder about here is the permit part, because to give you an example of another drug that we currently permit but regulate, um, Oxycontin. Yes. We know that this is a drug that is being used beyond its permissions. Um, and in fact, we're starting to see a trend, at least in the United States, of punishing, of criminalizing people who share their drugs with people mm. who aren't supposed to be receiving that prescription. So there are still all of these potentially criminalizing dimensions of moving beyond what is permitted. I mean, should we be punishing people who, for whatever reasons, are using drugs outside of the permissive regime? Well, you know, I think when you mention OxyContin, you, we get into a discussion of the opioid crisis. And in an ironic way, that plague, because it is a plague, it's a mm. horrible, tragic plague, is pushing us further and further along 
the road of legalization. And, yes. and what I mean by yes. that is we have to face the fact that, you know, our relatives, our neighbors, our friends may have become addicted to opioids for all sorts of complex reasons that really have nothing to do with their notion of the illegal drug trade, meaning they right. would hold that they It doesn't drugs. make them criminals, exactly. No. Yes. I would also say that even if somebody experiments with these drugs, uh, it's a foolish thing to do, but I don't think they should be made to be criminals. But my point to you here is, at least in Canada, you know, we have these uh, safe injection sites where people yeah. were saying to people, come and commit what it would otherwise be a criminal act. Come yeah. and inject the drugs. We don't want you yeah. to be overdose. We don't want you to be using tainted needles. We are now making medical grade heroin, and heroin, of course, is an opioid, available to, to doctors so they can say, look, if we can't get you off these opioids, at least in the short term, we prescribe medical grade heroin because we know we can control it. We know the dose to give you, et cetera, et cetera. More and more people are realizing, look, the criminal criminal law is not an answer here. It's a public health perspective that will give us answers. And those answers are going to be very difficult. One of the questions we need to ask is, how did these drugs that started out being legal, how were they pushed in a way that so many people became addicted to them. What happened to our regulatory system yeah. that it really failed us? So I'm not saying that, oh, you know, once you regulate something, there won't be any problems. And right. the opioid crisis is an example where even regulation can fail. But that doesn't, shouldn't push us back to thinking that criminalization is the solution. So, so Bill, just as a sort of final note here, you know, you're you're a little bit of an unusual academic, <laughs> and uh, you know, because of your being unusual, you are one of my most loved and respected colleagues. I have to say, for me personally, because what what well, what you've managed to do is you've started out, you know, as a fairly traditional academic many decades ago, I won't say exactly how many, <laughs> um, specializing in administrative law, which is the kind of thing that two lines are usually enough to send me off to sleep. And now you have become this public voice on a range of different issues on how we use the law in a society to promote fairness and justice, which in some ways is the most fundamental question that any of us who work in the legal system have to be interested in. So, you know, could you say a little bit about how you morphed from being this kind of nerdy admin law academic to being, frankly, you know, a far hipper figure in terms of the work that you now do and you blog for Huffington Post and so forth? Like, what happened in there? Was it reefer madness? The answer is no, and I want you and your listeners to know that I'm still a nerd I, at heart. I knew you wanted to say that. That's why I gave you that chat. Yeah. Um, I think, Julie, that there was something, something within me that always wanted to reach a larger audience. I always felt like, what's the purpose of having all this knowledge about law if we then don't connect it to larger social, political, and economic forces. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I know that I think many other legal academics would feel that way. And, you know, for me, I think the regulation of consumption became that 
that channel because, yeah. you know, we all consume, we all eat, we all, many of us at least, do take various drugs, include, including alcohol, you know, yeah. a legal one. And so when I began to talk about and publish about the regulation of consumption, it was, I think it was an easier path to mm. communicating with the public. I think the other thing is that a lot of academics don't necessarily write in a very accessible way. Mm. You know, it's not that what they're saying is not important. It's that they don't write in a way that is accessible for a larger, educated, sophisticated public. And, you know, that's the public I'm trying to reach. And, you know, I think it's very important when you're trying to reach a larger public to, if I may say so, be able to come to the point. You know, in these interviews, wherever they are, whether on television, radio, being in interviewed by a a newspaper reporter, you have to be able to deliver your message very clearly and very succinctly. And that's a challenge that I'm up for. I I enjoy that, but I enjoy that doing what, you know, I hope is with regard to important issues of our time. And I hope that I'm helping people shrink through very complicated, controversial issues. Right. Well, and I hope you'll keep doing it, Bill. And I know there's more coming yet from that desk that you'll be bringing away at. So I'm going to let you... Despite the fact that my many decades being at that desk. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Julie. I really appreciate this opportunity. Great to talk to you, as ever. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. So one of the first things uh, I want to mention about Bill is that I think he has the best laugh. (laughs) (laughs) He has a very unique and distinctive laugh. He does. And I'm going to say that he has a very kind of a masculine giggle, which I hope he doesn't take (laughs) offense at because I mean it in the best possible way. Okay, Bill, she said it, not me, all right? But it's it's a lovely laugh. Like, it's one of those, like, infectious, lovely laughs. And Bill, I swear I mean it as a compliment. And you are just fantastic. <laughs> but this was this was such a great conversation about, as you said in the introduction, a really, really timely topic. And I think, you know, in listening to the whole conversation and reflecting on the history, I guess, of drugs in um, in our culture, one of the things that kind of stands out is that our gut reaction to substances like these that can be harmful or, you know, uh, difficult in various ways, the gut reaction is to just make them illegal, make them not allowed at all. But I think nobody would disagree. I don't think people would disagree that historically, as we saw with prohibition in the 20s Mm. of alcohol, that's just not really an effective way to to deal with substances like these, because as we saw, it led to all sorts of other problems and didn't actually do any good solving the problem that they were trying to solve in the first place. Right, and I think it's such an interesting example of a problem that we have a sort of intuitive reaction to, Yeah, which is, you know, generally in our culture, we try to stop people doing things that hurt them. Mm -hmm. 
but that to do that using the full force of the law here has all of these other consequences. And this is very much a theme of a lot of Bill's other writing, mm -hmm. that you have to look at not just what you'd like to achieve, which is that kids don't use drugs, but how it's actually possible to make that work. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that he makes a very compelling case, even if it goes against our intuitive sense of this, for why permit but discourage mm -hmm. is a far better approach to drugs than our current legislation. Right. And I, you know, he also mentioned that the problem with, with banning things is that does not allow you to look at harm reduction strategies. Right. To have a strategy for, for ensuring that people are educated about, about harm reduction. That's right. That's right. Because, you know, at the moment we tell kids in schools, drugs are illegal. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a different kind of strategy if drugs are permitted but discouraged and they're actually taught to understand some of the harmful impacts on themselves and how to handle themselves in what would then be a legal market, just like alcohol is a legal market. Yes, exactly. But of course, one of the things, you know, as again, as Bill said, and this is one of the things that stood out to me and one of the very interesting, you know, when you're comparing cannabis and alcohol, as he points out, no one has ever died from right. ingesting cannabis. You cannot overdose on it, which mm. the same cannot be said of alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting when you look at the things that have been prohibited, that have been banned, and the changing ideas that we have about the mm -hmm, harm. Mm -hmm. uh, we know, for example, that nicotine causes cancer now, mm -hmm. but we don't ban it. We mm -hmm. try to educate people not to use it. And Bill, of course, uses that as, yeah. as a reference point as well. And as he says, of course, it's been a very successful public health that campaign. campaign has been. Yeah. 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 And the other thing that I, I was really struck by and thought about after this conversation, and indeed having read Bill's book, which is excellent, was how when trying to prohibit something starts to go awry, which I think you could definitely say about the quote-unquote war on drugs, what we tend to then resort to um, are individual punishments of mm -hmm, people. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that in the United States now, people who are prescribed Oxycontin but share it with others are starting to be prosecuted, mm. which, you know, you can see how if you're really trying to use the law as a tool to restrict consumption might make logical sense, but is such an incredibly cruel yes. way to think about people who are vulnerable and using drugs and someone who shares their drugs yeah. would then be convicted of an offense as a result. And then, of course, it doesn't actually get at the heart of the issue. Exactly. It's a very, very, very tiny, pinpoint, narrow focus when, of course, the systemic issues of the opioid crisis go back to drug companies and doctors over-prescribing and all of these things. So what good does it do to individually prosecute all of these people who are struggling with this problem in their lives? Yeah. No, I think like, like many, you know, criminal um, approaches, it's a way of penalizing somebody or a group of people in a way that makes us feel like we're doing something, mm. but it isn't necessarily solving the underlying problem. So... Myself, I feel very convinced of the arguments that Bill makes. I know not everybody who's listening will do. Um, there's going to be a lot of debate about this, mm -hmm. obviously, as we see <laughs> the legalization of cannabis being rolled out in the next little while. And obviously, as always, we welcome people's feedback and thoughts and comments. Absolutely. And just before we go, one last thing that uh, I want to point out is the fact that Bill fits, again, very squarely into our overarching podcast theme of uh, people who are academics 
but are not just sitting in those ivory towers. Mm -hmm. They are jumping out and uh, looking at ways that they can have their research make an impact on regular people and on everyday lives. And Bill talks about how important it is for him to write and speak in an accessible way for an educated public audience. Which is a very good summary of what we're trying to do in this podcast. Exactly. Thank you, Bill. (laughs) In other news. First up, the Canadian Lawyer magazine published an article on the role that accountants might be able to play as limited licensed legal technicians. This particular article focuses on the Manitoba Law Society and the Law Society of British Columbia and their attempts at grappling with issues of regulatory models for the legal profession. This would involve setting educational standards, practical standards, and the specifics of what the article refers to as a strategic alliance between lawyers and accountants. The article further explains that there is a substantial portion of the market for legal service that is not being served by lawyers, and that this new venture would fill a currently unmet need, rather than negatively impacting the legal profession, which, of course, is what the various provincial law societies will care about most. At the NSRLP, we've discussed LLTs in the past at great length, including advocating for paralegals in family law. Whenever discussion of LLTs comes up, it's always refreshing to remind ourselves that rather than using the term non-lawyer, we can be more specific by using words like legal service professional or limited licensed legal technician. In fact, the NSRLP published a blog post on the term non-lawyer, discussing how it reinforces a narrow lawyer-centered approach to the legal system rather than a client-centered approach. Next up in other news, The American Bar Association recently published a report on race and gender bias in the legal profession. This report was based on a survey of 2,800 lawyers. The report included some shocking statistics that suggest that not enough is being done to combat racism and sexism in the legal profession. For example, nearly 70% of women of color said they were paid less than their colleagues with similar experience and seniority. This number was 60% for white women and 36% for white men. Another issue the report looks at is sexual harassment. One quarter of female lawyers said they had encountered some form of unwelcome sexual advances or harassment at work. And 70% said they've dealt with sexist comments, stories, and jokes. While the report paints a bleak picture, It does include tips, suggestions, and resources to help mitigate racism and sexism through an evidence-based and metric-driven approach. Even if you don't have a chance to read the whole report, the toolkit will probably be worth reading. Lastly, in case you missed it, Julie published a new blog post on how Serena Williams was punished, and how it draws parallels with the ways in which SRLs are often punished. We hope that our SRL case law database and the database reports can help spark the conversation on judicial fairness, and that we can keep that conversation going at our upcoming dialogue event in October. That's it for this week of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week when we chat with NSRLP's own Megan Campbell about the journey of dealing with a chronic illness while in law school. 